listening to The Fret Files, the Guitar Workshop Podcast with Eric Daw. To participate in the show, go to my website, ericdaw.com. That's E-R-I-C-D-A-W dot com. Click on the contact link and submit your question or comment there. I'll use it as part of the show. The other way to do it is to call or text 757-774-8482. Leave your voicemail there and I'll use that as part of the show. And now, the Fret Files Podcast. indeed. Welcome to the Fret Files Podcast. My name is Eric Daw, your guitar scientist with over 20 years of experience building and repairing guitars. This is a podcast about guitar repair, guitar building, guitar news, guitar science, and guitar opinions. Conspicuously absent this evening is my lovely wife and co-host Melissa. Yes, she's gone. It's just me and you tonight. Uh, and normally we do question and answer episodes. But not tonight. We have a great interview for you. Actually, we are going to do a little bit of news first. I think we are going to take a couple of questions. But uh, the highlight of this episode is an interview with Scott Freelich. Scott is a guitar repair guy based out of New York State. We're going to talk to Scott about neck press devices, or they're called neck presses or neck heaters. It's a long, straight, metal neck heating device uh, that allows you to straighten a warped neck or correct uh, an overbow and uh, all kinds of things. I mean, it really is an invaluable tool, but for some strange reason, it's kind of an old-school tool, uh, an old-school method of guitar repair that doesn't seem to be available. It's not a tool you can buy anymore, and Scott's going to explain why. A, why they're not available anymore, and uh, B, why you should still get one. And Scott has a few for sale, or you can build your own. We're going to talk to Scott about that in the second half of the episode, but first, let me tell you what's been going on around here. I've been doing some interesting things in the shop. Uh, I had a Martin neck reset that was... (laughs) This was the toughest neck reset I've ever done. 70s Martin. And uh, sometime in the 70s, Martin switched from hide glue to uh, like a white glue. And it's much more difficult to get those necks off. The steam, you know, you steam off a neck uh, when you're doing a neck reset. And that works really well on hide glue. It still works on the white glue, but not as well. It really takes a lot more steam and a lot more muscle to get those darn things off. This particular neck, I had never seen this before. This was a 74, I think, 74 Martin 12 string. It was a D1228. And this neck, so normally an acoustic guitar neck, specifically a Martin, is really only glued on the dovetail surface. This neck... (laughs) 
I've never, I'd never seen anything like this. There was almost no gap uh, at the bottom of the dovetail. Normally, there's a gap, and it falls just under a fret slot so that you can stick, you can drill a hole in there. You can stick in a, uh, like a basketball needle or, or something else to inject some steam in there. And usually, there's a pretty good size gap in there that that allows you to steam that neck out. This one had almost no gap. It had a very full neck tenon that that uh, almost completely filled up the dovetail. And uh, so consequently, it was really difficult to get it out because they had glued the bottom of the dovetail to the to the top of the slot in the block. This neck was glued on every surface that they could possibly glue it on. The cheeks of the the butt end of the neck were were glued to the sides. The dovetail was glued to the block, and then the the bottom of the dovetail was glued to the to the uh, uh, to the slot in the uh, in the end of the end block. I mean, it was I had never seen anything like this when they put that guitar together at the factory. They did not want that one to come apart. But I got it apart, and I put it all back together with hide glue and reset the neck, and it's all good now. But if you have, if you want to send me a Martin 12-string from the 70s, I think I'm going to raise my price on that, <laughs> because those are really a challenge. I tell you what, I spent, I think, twice as much time as I, uh, as I normally would have on any other neck reset. I'm also refretting a vintage Jaguar, Fender Jaguar, a 1962, and it's the most beautiful Jaguar. I've never seen one like this. It's blonde with gold hardware. Oh, it's beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. What a joy it is to refret something like that, you know? Oh, I love my job. It's so good. So keep sending me those repairs, guys. Go to ericdaw.com. You can contact me there if you've got repairs or questions or pickup rewinds or anything you need help with. I'm here for you. Let's do some guitar news, shall we? Guitar news. Well, guitar makers have been hit really hard by these new regulations on Rosewood. Uh, The new rules took effect last year, and they require documentation when you're shipping instruments that contain Rosewood internationally. So if it's going to cross any kind of an international border, you've got to have a documentation with it, or they get confiscated and or destroyed. It's really a problem. Guitar makers have complained about the long delays in getting the permits to import and export rosewood, and uh, acoustic guitar exports from the U.S. have fallen by 28%, while electric guitar exports declined to 23%. That's huge! Uh, And this all stems from an international crackdown on illegal logging of the prized rosewood. And it's really ensnared makers of uh, guitars and other musical instruments because their top-end products require small amounts of rosewood, a material prized for its rich, multicolored grain and resonant sound. This is from CNBC, and the headline is Guitar Makers Hit Hard by new regulations on prized rosewood. Uh, The new trade rules took effect in 2017, and uh, it's 
Yeah. The permit process apparently is not easy and very time-consuming. I'm so annoyed. I'm so distraught by this, said Chris Martin, chairman and CEO of C.F. Martin & Company, which uses Rosewood in 200 different models of their acoustic guitars. Fearful that Africa and Asia were losing rosewood forests, the governments adopted the rules to stem the flow of smuggled rosewood to China's luxury furniture manufacturers. Huh. So you know who to blame. It really wasn't a guitar industry problem. The problem was the illegal smuggling into China. Thanks, China. That's great. But... The restrictions have really hurt companies that use relatively small amounts of rosewood, particularly guitar makers, clarinet, and oboe makers, and other instrument manufacturers. Months after the regulations were adopted, acoustic guitar exports from the U.S. fell by 28%. Yeah, we already talked about that. So music retailers reported losing about $60 million due to these new restrictions. At Martin's Pennsylvania-based company, Many transactions are stalled. We have orders for the guitars. We have customers. The customers have the money to pay for them. We cannot ship them because the paperwork is stuck somewhere, he said. This is so frustrating. I mean, I understand. We need to be good stewards of the planet, and we need to uh, be careful with our, you know, limited resources. But uh, the guitar industry wasn't the problem. So this is really, it's frustrating. It's very frustrating. This is all... This all stems from the CITES. This all stems from the CITES Treaty, which is responsible for combating wildlife smuggling. The agency has tangled in the past with instrument makers, mostly over restrictions on ivory, tortoise shell, and whalebone. It was a steep learning curve for these companies, said Timothy Van Norman, chief of the permit-granting branch of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service which saw its permit applications double to 40,000 in 2017, mostly from Rosewood. The big guitar companies with more sophisticated distribution systems were probably quicker to adapt than smaller companies or individuals making a limited number of instruments. For them, it probably came out of the blue. Taylor Guitars, based in El Cajon, California, reported losing tens of thousands of dollars from months-long delays and confusion surrounding its shipments to some 30 countries in the world. Each country was suddenly responsible for interpreting what this new rule meant, said Scott Paul, Taylor's Director of Natural Resource Sustainability. This has affected the big boys and the medium boys and the small companies as well. I don't, I I won't ship now. I won't ship uh, guitars with Rosewood Necks internationally because I'm not going to go through the permit process. I I just am not going to do it. So... Consequently, uh, and it's not like I ship a lot of guitars, but uh, I have shipped guitars internationally before, you know, guitars that I'm selling or guitars that I've made. Uh, But this even affects repairs. I mean, imagine, you know, I have repair customers in Canada. They want to ship me their old guitar that has rosewood on it. Well, even though it's a vintage guitar, it has rosewood. Now, Now it needs some kind of documentation and permit. It's really, I don't, yeah. It's really a problem. So that's the news. Isn't it sad? Well, we have a phone call to take, so let's take a call. 
Hi, Eric and Melissa. Uh, it's Sean from Allentown again. I just, uh, first off, I want to thank you for answering my question about the cracked headstock last time. I think you've, uh, made the job much easier for me. Um, and I appreciate that. So thanks for that. I got another one for you, but there's a little bit of background involved in this one first. Um, I have an old 60s Japanese guitar. I'm on the catalog guitars, like a Taisco or something. Um, Red burst, short scale, it's got four pickups on it. You know, everything that we love and hate about these guitars at the same time. Um, as usual with these, um, the frets are pretty flat. Um, there's absolutely nothing you can do to salvage the frets that are on it. So I figured, you know, right now it's just kind of a decoration piece, but I figured once I got better at uh, fret work and um, fret replacement and everything, it would be a nice project. So I was looking at it, and it has a bound fretboard, and at first I'm like, oh, that's no big deal. I know what to do with a bound fretboard. You know, you cut the tang short and everything. But then I looked at it, and I realized that um, the manufacturer kind of cheated and made the job a little easier on themselves. The frets are only as wide as the wood. They don't extend over the binding. And uh, that, you know, was a bit of a head scratch. And then I looked at it a little closer, and I'm like, well, maybe I can just, you know, do it right and extend it over the binding. But I looked at it again, and they cheated again. They actually, the, the binding on the neck has like a, a bevel in it um, going down the, the top of the fretboard there. So it, it gives you the illusion of a rounded fretboard, but the frets, the fret ends don't, extend over it and everything and i'm like well this is this is interesting and kind of a presents a bit of a challenge so the way i see it is there's there's two ways to do this and it's either you know replace the frets the way that the factory did so leave the bevel binding on or remove the binding rebind the neck and then fret it properly quote unquote properly um i guess my question is uh in your many years of guitar repair experience, have you ever come across a guitar like this with these flat frets on a bound fingerboard? And what did you end up doing or what did the customer have you do with it? Um, I mean, I, I doubt I'm going to get to this anytime soon, but I'm just kind of curious. If you had a similar guitar in your shop, what, what, how would you approach this particular situation on a refret of a uh, old Japanese guitar? So uh, I look forward to your thoughts and your reply on this particular issue. And uh, by the way, your Billy Joel is pretty spot on. So. <laughs> right on. <laughs> Thanks, Sean. I, I think we got cut off there at the end, but I got the message. Uh, yeah. So that is a tricky. That is a tricky repair on those Tysco refrets. Um, here's my thoughts. Uh, pull the frets out, just like you would on any other refret. Pull them out cleanly, and um, then if, uh, if what I've seen of those guitars holds true for your guitar, then it probably needs to be planed a little bit <clears throat> and sanded down a little bit on the fingerboard. And that is going to crisp up those binding edges. Uh, you don't want to remove much wood, but um, in this case, it'll really help crisp up those the, the bound edges so that you can do a refret. At least that's what I'm thinking. Uh, you can try that. 
And really, you know, what I would do is experiment, install one fret, and then experiment with the fret edge and see if you're able to shape it into an acceptable uh, fret end. But what I've done in the past on some of those, you know, when when you're fretting a guitar with binding, you have to cut the tang so that it fits inside the binding, and then you're going to have the overhang over the binding. The actual fret surface is going to overhang on the binding. And what you can do on that is, with your fretting hammer, tap those ends down just a little bit uh, on the overhang so that they come in contact with the binding. So the combination of those two things, sanding down the fingerboard a little bit, and then tapping down the ends just a little bit where they overhang, uh, should get you to where you need to be on that refret. It's a tricky refret that, um, you know, it's not the way you would want to do it on a vintage Gibson or something like that, but vintage Gibson doesn't normally have this problem. They do have oftentimes very worn binding, and uh, it's kind of a similar situation, so... Yeah, try that and let me know how that works. I I think you're going to be okay. I wouldn't I wouldn't go the full uh measure of removing the binding and re rebinding it. That really is a a lot more work than I think you're going to need to do. So, just proceed with caution and like I say, try just install one or two frets and then uh and then shape the end and see how it goes and then you'll know <clears throat> that way you don't refret the whole thing and and get into a pickle. So give that a try. Let's take a little break, and then we'll be right back with an interview with Scott Freelick. It's hard for me to talk about the guitars that I make. I feel like I'm bragging, or I feel like I'm being a pushy salesman, but I'm not above reading unsolicited emails from happy owners of my guitars and uh, calling it a commercial. Hi, Eric. Hope you are doing well. Just wanted to follow up and say that I love this guitar. The tonal difference in all of the switch positions is amazing. The neck is so fast and straight, and it's very light. Most importantly, the pickups are incredible. Any tone is available. Nate. Well, thanks, Nate. I'm so glad that he's happy with that one. Eric, thanks so much for making my favorite guitar. I've owned so many, and I can't figure out why this guitar feels like the one that I've been playing with my whole life, even though I've only had it a month. Thank you, Eli. Right on. You did it again, my friend. Why do your pickups sound so f***ing good? (laughs) David. (laughs) You know, I tell people it's it's like making a cake. You gotta have the right recipe, you gotta have quality ingredients, and you have to, it all comes together in a certain way. And if you do the wrong thing at any certain step, then you end up with a bad cake. Right. It's like making a delicious, very good sounding cake. Go ahead. Recently purchased the Nitro Blonde pinup custom guitar you made. The intonation, resonance, playability, and that amazing tone in all three coil selections is by far the best I have ever played. I plug in and can't stop playing for hours. I will probably sell both of my other guitars and get another pinup. Thanks, Douglas. That's what I like to hear. Douglas, thank you. And you guys are so nice. You can see these lovely creations at pinupcustomguitars.com. That's P-I-N-U-P, like pinup girl, pinupcustomguitars.com. 
As you may already know, I make custom leather guitar straps. I hand make each strap from start to finish. I start with a hide of some of the finest vegetable tan leather on the market. Each hide is chosen for exceptional quality, color, and grain. If you haven't been to my website lately, you need to check it out. I've got a bunch of new strap designs and colors listed with more on the way. If you don't see the perfect strap, contact me with your custom order idea. Visit malcoleather.com to seek examples of custom orders I've done in the past. If you're a dealer, I offer competitive wholesale pricing. Email malcoleather at gmail.com for details. Find me on Facebook, Instagram, and of course, Etsy. If you're listening to this, you get 15% off when you enter code FRETFILES at checkout at melcoleather.com. That's M-E-L-C-O leather.com. Joining me on the phone is Scott Freelich. Scott, how you doing? Good, thank you. Good. It's great to talk to you. Um, I... I became aware of you because of something you're selling on eBay. Why don't you tell me about what you're selling there? Well, what I was selling on eBay that caught your attention was a guitar heat press iron. Mm -hmm. And uh, I started to manufacture them after I realized I couldn't find a replacement for the one I had been using for years after the permanently attached power cord got torn out of it, and I had to tear it apart to make it work again. Yeah. That's a tool that I've used for years, and uh, I couldn't find one either. I had to make my own, but there's uh, there's a few famous manufacturers that made those. Aria made one, and uh, did LMI make them for a while? I don't remember. LMI had them in their catalog. Somebody was making them for them. My original one was purchased from St. Louis Music. Yeah, St. Louis Music. And I don't understand. Maybe you can enlighten me. I don't understand why they're so hard to find. They they don't seem to be available anymore. I think there's probably two reasons. Reason one is they're really dangerous unless you're careful with them. They'll never get UL approval. Yeah. And reason two is that most people who have purchased them and don't understand the physics behind how they work have not had great success with them. And after a couple of failures by not understanding the process, they put them aside. I have seen several of them gathering dust on the shelves of repair shops. Really? That's so surprising to me because I use mine all the time. It's an invaluable tool. And basically, you know, for those who don't know, let me explain what the tool is. It's basically a flat, uh, hollow piece of steel with heat elements inside, right? Well, yours might be flat and hollow, but mine, I usually use a a solid piece of aluminum that I drill out Mm -hmm. and put a cartridge heater in. So, and I center the cartridge heater in it. And mine is pretty much an improved copy of the one I had a rip part from St. Louis Music. Yeah. I predominantly use mine to straighten the necks on guitars that don't have adjustable truss rods, like Vintage Martins or, you know, Harmonies without adjustable truss rods, all kinds of guitars, really, that, you know, and, and very nice guitars that don't have adjustable truss rods. If they get a warp in the neck, there's 
only a few ways that you can approach that situation. One situation that you can, uh, one way that you can do that is uh, start to plane away wood from the fingerboard. And I'm not a fan of that technique because you can't put wood back on once you take it off. No, I'm not a fan of that either. And the funny thing is I saw in my research to see what people were doing for fixing warp necks. One of the instructions that I saw online uh, was somebody said, you remove the fingerboard, you put the neck in a back bow, and then you put glue the fingerboard back on. I guess that's a functional way to do it. Well, in a way, if if we're dealing with a, a fingerboard glued on with hide glue, in a way, that's right. what that's what the uh, that's what the neck straightening iron does because it softens up the glue, uh, and then it becomes re-glued, you know, with the back bow or however you want it. But it also it 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 also is using heat to manipulate the wood. And I've had I've had numerous people tell me that wood has a memory and. Trying to straighten out a piece of wood with heat won't work, and I completely disagree. Otherwise, how how would we bend acoustic guitar sides? Well, here's the here's the thing. First of uh, regarding hide glue, I've seen some experiments that were done by Roger Simonoff regarding hide glue. Mm-hmm. Heat doesn't break down hide glue. Hot water breaks down hide glue. Uh, but uh, regarding the way the neck works. Uh, the neck heat press works, at least what from I, what I've seen, because it'll work on a unitized solid maple neck as well as working on a neck with a fingerboard, mm-hmm. is that yeah. right. the wood has a certain moisture content in it naturally, you know, sure. and when you're pressing it, it is sort of like the, what a curling iron does to a woman's hair. Yeah. When she's curling her hair. Now, I, and the wood does have a memory because when it, I have found when I press necks, if I don't go a little further than where I think I'd like the neck to be, yeah, it'll spring back to where I don't want it to be. Sure. So there is some memory there. Sure. And you, I'm sure you found this too. Absolutely. You, you have to almost yeah. o- overcorrect. Um, but there's so right. many, there's so many situations where this tool is useful. Uh, there's a yep. there's a number of guitars that will you know you'll have a hump in the third or fifth fret area. The rest of the neck is straight. Yep. The rest of the neck is straight, yep. and you've just got one little section with a hump. Well, this heat press tool, this neck press, is just magic for that. And it's really magic for necks that are crowned which means they have a bow in them that's reversed from what string tension would put in. Yeah. And no amount of string tension will put a bow in them. Yeah. You can put a bow in them. And the common problem on both our neck instruments where they hope uh, they hump up at the point where they're bolted to the body. Yeah. This will take care of that all the time. Oh yeah. Yeah. I use it on acoustic guitars, electric guitars. I use it on yep. vintage fenders that are a solid piece of maple. You know, the neck is a solid yep chunk of maple it works it works wonderfully and it's a shame that they're they're not really commercially available but i'm so tickled that you are selling them and uh it's the only one that i've been able to find that's commercially available um but 
uh, let's. I I want to. I actually wanted to ask you a little bit about about your background. Where how did you get to the point that you are that you're making a, a luthier tool like this? What how did you get in? How did you get started in the in the guitar world? Well, I lived out in the middle of no place as a kid, and I was I've been a bass player now since I've been like thirteen or fourteen. And every instrument that I bought in the, you know, little music stores that, that were around my house did not play in tune. Mm-hmm. And, you know, being an upright player, intonation became, was very important to me. And when I was buying these instruments that had frets on them that didn't tune, I had to figure out a system to make them play in tune. And I realized, you know, it all involved making the octaves an octave apart on the instrument. And that's what got me started started in repair at all. And I was a ham radio operator at a very young age, so I oh, understood yeah. electronics. Yeah, sure. And so I started fixing guitars for friends of mine uh, in the neighborhood, making the guitars tune and repairing their electronics. And probably I was 15 or 16, I was looking for a, a fretless bass, and there were no fretless basses on the market. At, mm-hmm. at that point, I'm 60, I'll be 65 this year. So my friends, my dad's friend had a mahogany headboard from a bed and a full shop in his basement. He said, well, we could build one of these things. So we went down to the basement and I built myself a mahogany fretless space that I could use. Hmm. And that's sort of what got me started. Wow. And so... After, you know, going from my home in Lake Ronkonkoma, Long Island, moving up to Buffalo, New York, I started repairing instruments when I got there, and I hooked up with a guy named Ron Gordon, Uh who only knew about acoustic guitars, and I knew about electric guitars, and besides us playing in bands together, he says, you know, I don't know anything about electric guitars. Why don't you repair all the electrics that come into my shop? And I'll teach you everything I know about acoustic guitars. I said, wow. fine. Yeah. So sometime about 72 or 73, he says, I'm moving to Vermont to build dulcimers. You want to take over all my business? I said, sure. <laughs> so he had most of the guitar repair accounts for the shops in the city of Buffalo. And I started there. <laughs> and graduated from college in 76. Yeah was semi on the road playing and doing guitar repairs and I realized I needed a real job that didn't take me away from my wife and that much. So I opened up Top Shelf Music in nineteen seventy nine with uh, an eye on running a you know, good guitar repair shop, which there wasn't one at the time other than what I was doing in Buffalo uh-huh. and selling used vintage instruments. And uh immediately went out and got the uh, Martin Fender and Gibson warranty repair authorizations, and that kept me busy for 35 years. Well, that's great. That's great. And I think you mentioned to me that you recently retired. Is that right? I shut down my shop in, in 2014 since my wife had retired a few years before, and we wanted to spend more time not being responsible. <laughs> yeah, that sounds good to me. Um. And is there an outlet that you're selling these neck uh, heaters, these straightening irons? Well, I originally just built one for myself as a prototype, so I had a spare. 
And then I realized people were asking me yeah. to build them. Yeah. Because I, I, you know, reverse engineered mine, came up with improvements. And so I made a, ba- a first batch for all my friends who had been bugging me about getting one. And then I started getting more calls after that batch was done. So I built a second batch and I have some of those left and maybe I'll build a first, third batch if I get a call for those. Yeah, I hope you do. If people are interested, how can they get a hold of you? Well, the best way to get me is through, you know, email. And that's the email address you have, shelftop at AOL.com. And when they get the heat press, they also get the benefit of my, you know, close to 40 years of experience of using one. So it comes with a PowerPoint of showing you how to do the major operations and the whole set of instructions listing the theory of operation and, you know, guidance as to clamping pressure and temperature and all those kind of good things. That's great. Um, Can you say that email address one more time? I didn't quite catch that. Maybe spell it out. Okay. Okay. S-H-E-L-F-T-O-P at AOL.com. Yeah, shelftop at AOL.com. Um, it's it's an invaluable tool in my shop, and I know it is in other shops. It's 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 strange to me that it's a tool that seems to have kind of fallen out of favor, and I think that it's for the reasons that you mentioned— <laughs> it's a tricky tool if you don't know what you're doing and you really can ruin a guitar. Uh, I've seen... Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You've got plastic in the fingerboard. You can set the plastic on fire. If you overheat a lacquer finish, it'll bubble. Yep. And it could go on fire, too. you yeah. got to be careful and you got to know what you're doing. I saw a guy in a shop I worked in in the 90s. I saw a guy ignite uh, some inlays that were yep. they must have been made out of nitrate or something but boy yep. they went up like flash paper boom they sure do yeah so you got to be so you got to be careful but, but well i have the thing I, I i have is i've figured out how much heat my particular units that i've designed built mm-hmm. i figured out the height of, of the cowl that i need to space the heat press iron from the neck yeah. and I figured out what temperature the rear surface of the neck needs to be hmm. for it, my heat press to be effective and what it needs to be before I'm going to cause myself some grief. Yeah. And all of that information is in the information I supply with the heat presses that I make. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the way that I do it, I've got a, uh, a very thick piece of masonite wrapped in, uh, aluminum foil to use as a, to use as a spacer between the neck and the heating iron. And, uh, I found that to be effective for the, for the one that I've built, but I think ours are different, slightly different designs. I've just, what I did is I made a, uh, a pretty crude one out of a hollow tube that I got from Stuart McDonald, a steel hollow tube. Right, that, the standing tube that they th- make, yeah. That's exactly right, yeah, and I put some heating elements yeah. in there, but the one that you've made there is uh, very interesting. I might have to order one of those from you um, because it, it seems to me that uh, 
does that have a thermos? Does that have a thermostat on it? I found a thermostat to be superfluous. Oh yeah, because you thought you really my units are designed. You'd have to leave it on a neck for two hours. Oh yeah, for it to overheat a neck. See, mine gets way too hot, so I put I turn it on mine for mine gets I, way too hot if you touch it. Yeah, but. My spacers keep it almost almost an inch away from the neck. Oh, sure. And so, uh-huh. radiates, so that it radiates heat into the neck. Yeah, okay. If, did you get a chance to look at the PowerPoint that I sent? I didn't see that yet. Uh, I didn't get it yet. Yeah, because I emailed those to you yesterday. Oh, they didn't show up. Maybe they're in my spam folder. I'll have to check yeah, that out. Yeah, they probably are. Take a look. Take a look. If you didn't find them, I will send them again. Okay. And you will see the whole clamping process that I that I've developed, and there's other processes that I have too. Like I don't know how many upright bases I've had come to me where the fingerboard past the neck body joint is bowed up. Yeah. And in most cases, people either plane them down so they're too thin to be able to play in the upper register, or they pull the fingerboard off and replace the fingerboard. I have a heat pressing system that will repair that problem huh yeah that's great yeah. um there and are... i also Go like we were discussing when you first talked to me about this um i sent you a series of photos that are of my system for changing neck angles oh yeah and i know you have some questions about that i didn't give you any documentation written documentation on that but i sent you uh, a series of photos of a Guild X170 that I was that I that had a solid neck set that I was able to probably drop the action height by four sixty fourths at the uh, at the body joint yeah. by using my heat press neck neck angle change system. Yeah, I remember now. You were saying that by with using using this tool, you are able to very slightly change the neck angle on a guitar without having to take it off. Uh, only, only if it's a very slight change, is that right? Well, I mean, if you if you if you have an action height of twelve sixty four, I'm not going to get it down to four sixty four. Sure, but if you have an action height of eight sixty four, I can get it down to four sixty four without you... having to remove the neck. Wow, now that's interesting to me because it seems to me that I'm trying to picture that, and it seems to me that. Uh, I don't know how that it would change the angle. Um, I'm picturing the neck bending, but but I don't I don't get how it changes the angle. But I'm so I'm really I'm I'm anxious to see your documentation. That is really interesting. That's that's fabulous. Yeah, there's no documentation, but the clamping system. Yeah, is shown there, and if you experiment with it, you see it'll work. Hmm. Interesting. That is great. And yeah. you so you were uh, an authorized repair station for a lot of different companies how right. did 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 you use this um uh did, did you use this technique effectively and were you able to bill them uh for the work or did they did they disagree with the methods i know that martin doesn't really talk about uh straightening necks using a heat iron no, no, Martin, but you know what? I had a I had a long relationship with Martin. I had you know, Mike Longworth himself came and approved us as a repair shop. 
Huh. And I, I was close friends with everybody there. And what they would do is they would sort of wink, wink, nod, nod. Tell us how much you need for this repair. We'll come up with a coating for it and pay you. Hmm. Yeah. So they they were more interested in the results. Absolutely. Yeah. Which makes sense to me. That absolutely makes sense to me. That's yeah, great. Their, their official line is heat presses don't work. Their unofficial line, if you hang out in the factory and talk to them, because I've 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 gone and spoke to them there several times, is make it work, and we'll pay you for it. Yeah. How strange! <laughs> I really find it strange that such an effective technique is almost like it's treated like it's black magic. Well, I like I I think the real problem is is that it. Uh, here, here's here's an example. When I bought my heat press from St. Louis Music, it came with an instruction sheet that basically said you put the heating iron above the fingerboard and you sit it on the counter that way. Mm-hmm. It can't, it doesn't work. Heat yeah. rises. Yeah, right. And I've seen so many people who don't understand physics try <laughs> to do that way. I've talked to so many repairmen who say, well, I can't use the heat press. I sat it on the neck, and then I tried pressing it after that, after taking the, the iron off and letting it cool, and I said, no. Yeah. And then, or a lot of guys who use it above the neck, and once I've shown them how it works, and I always use, you know, there's always something around my shop that I can use as a demo. Yeah. And it doesn't take very long to do. I mean, it, uh, you, you can show somebody a demo. You can come in, you, come in, heat the neck, go out to lunch, come back, neck's cooled when you're done. And and take it out and say, here, this is what it did. Yeah. Yeah, I found it to be very effective, and I've used it on guitars that I was able to monitor for years, and uh, I found it to be, you know, a, a technique that held. You know, it, it did it did hold, it, and it did work on, uh, you know, on vintage Fenders. I've used it on Rickenbackers. I've used it on Martins. And uh, it's definitely a valid technique, and you got to have the right tool, and you got to know how to use it. Right, but I, you know, I find that it holds in eighty-five percent of the situations. Uh huh. That's pretty good, though. And that's 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 pretty good. And I find it probably ninety-five percent effective when you do it. Yeah. But sometimes a guy will come back two years later, and the problem is back. Yeah. But such an inexpensive process to offer somebody versus any other thing you could do right to to affect the repair that for the cost of doing it again every two years it's nothing compared to what you would have to pay to get it done any other way yeah yeah absolutely it's also it's it, it's a tool that i found useful in removing fingerboards as well to get the uh oh it's great it's great for removing fingerboards um it's it's great for getting twists out of necks yeah right it's great you know it's uh, and like i said i love it for the typical problem that 90 percent of the uprights that you see have where the fingerboard is really bowed up starting at the body joint it'll you know you in that situation it's it's you basically have to use a belt clamp on the fingerboard and then you hang the heat press Below the base, when you sit the base on two chairs, it puts the heat in there. Mm-hmm. And you you let it cool in, in, in with the belt clamp on it. 
Yeah. Take off the belt clamp, neck straight. Wow. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, and like I said, no planing. You know, once you're removing wood, no. you, you can't put that wood back. And I, I, I would much rather try doing a neck press before I resorted to something like uh, planing a fingerboard, especially when we're dealing with a vintage instrument where... Um, oh, absolutely. Once you remove wood, that's it. There's no going back. It's gone. Yeah. It's gone. It's gone forever. Yeah. Scott? And it's probably my first tool to use in any situation where I can't get the neck straightened to where I need it to be or any situation where the neck is solidly on the body and the action is too high. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't want to remove any material off the bridge because again, same situation. Once you've got, you have a guitar that needs a neck set, if you trim the bridge down, then it needs a neck set and a new bridge. Yeah, I know. Yeah. You've compounded the problem. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Scott, fascinating stuff. I really appreciate you being part of the podcast here. Um, will you okay. uh, tell tell people how to get a hold of you one more time? What's that email address? Okay. The best way to get a hold of me is shelftop, S-H-E-L-F-T-O-P at AOL.com. That's great. That's great. Scott, thanks so much, man. I, I appreciate it. Okay. Thank you, Eric. Okay. Good talking to you, buddy. Okay, you too. Bye now. Bye-bye. Well, that does it for this episode of the Fret Files Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. We do appreciate it, and thank you for participating, for those of you who do. And if you haven't, you should send in a question. Go to ericdaw.com. That's E-R-I-C-D-A-W.com. Click the contact link, and you can submit your question there. The other way to do it is to call or text 757 757- 774-8482 and I'll use your question as part of the show. Thank you to Scott Freelich for the great interview and uh, we'll see you all in two weeks. Thank you.